In the talk this evening, I would like to talk about the spiritual warrior. Every spiritual tradition seems to portray and feature in some form, in some role, the concept and the quality of being a spiritual warrior. It's a portrayal used to describe an aspirant, a spiritual seeker, a spiritual aspirant, who is reaching towards and seeking for change and transformation. It's a concept used to describe a person who's traveling a path which is directed towards the realization of some yet unrealized goal, objective, or potential. Sometimes the goals that are being reached for, they go by different names. They go by the names of purity, or enlightenment, or oneness, or realization. But the, the seeker is focused upon something which is separate and apart from where they are, from what they're experiencing in that moment. And usually the search is taking place in the midst of forces, outer forces or inner forces, inner qualities, which seem to overwhelm or hinder or paralyze the search in some way. The spiritual life is one which is frequently portrayed as being a kind of struggle, a kind of contest. It's frequently portrayed as holding differing degrees of conflict and tension. And that struggle takes place in the spiritual life because there seems to be these polarized forces. On one hand, there seems to be all of those things that we seek for in our spirituality, the wholesome, the worthy, the awakening, inner qualities, and at times also goals, outer goals that haven't been reached. And the other extreme of the polarization are those qualities within ourselves and perhaps forces around ourselves which seem to be destructive or undermining or unworthy in some way. The struggle exists in spirituality because that polarization seems to have a reality. And when we look at the qualities within ourselves and we explore our inner being, there does indeed seem to be within ourselves these kind of polarized forces our yearnings for something, for awakening, for realization, for fulfilling our potential. And yet also there seems to be things, forces and qualities within ourselves that seem to weigh us down, that seem to hinder us, that seem to be a kind of obstacle. When we begin even our quest for inner change, 
And when we begin our quest for awakening or fulfillment, it's often when we begin that we become aware that there are areas within ourselves that seem to hinder that which we seek for. And then our aspiring, our searching, seems to take on the flavor of a struggle. It seems to take on an inevitable flavor of tension at times of conflict. That polarization and that struggle, it's an age-old struggle. It's certainly not one that is just confined to spirituality. Rather, we see it in almost every area of life. It's the struggle that exists between perhaps those who care for the balance of the ecology of our planet and those who seek to profit from our planet, who disregard perhaps exploitation when it happens in the name of profit. It's the struggle that exists between those who cherish peace, cooperation, rapport between, those, between being, and those who seem to pursue war and aggression and division. It's the struggle that exists between those who treasure freedom and dignity and the spirit of all beings and those who perhaps seek power through oppression or through subjugation. We can perhaps also easily identify that struggle in our own lives as it takes place within our own lives. Perhaps we can recognize polarized forces that exist within ourselves. On one hand, we may find ourselves seeking for autonomy, for self-reliance, for a sense of completeness and containment inwardly. At the same time, we may find ourselves acting in ways which is inviting or seeking also for dependency and for reliance upon others. We may, on one level, yearn to explore the boundaries of our own consciousness, to explore the horizons of our own possibilities. We may yearn to really travel and explore all that's unknown to us. At the same time, we may find ourselves retreating again and again to hide within all that is familiar to us, all that feels safe to us, to shelter within the boundaries of what we know and what we can rely upon. We may find ourselves on one level yearning for self-understanding, yearning for realization within ourselves, at the same time, we may find ourselves enacting in our lives ways of being and patterns of relating in which we're constantly seeking to define ourselves by external sources, through roles, through relationships, through identities, through props that we gather in our lives. We may, in our own lives and in our own paths, want to forsake conditioning, areas of our conditioning that feels destructive to us, that feels undermining to us, 
And yet the next day, the next hour, the next week, we may find ourselves seeking approval or seeking affirmation or seeking acceptance through upholding and enacting the very patterns of conditioning that we find to be destructive. We encounter, probably all of us, encounter those kind of polarities, those kind of extremes at different times in our lives, at different times within ourselves. And it is when we encounter that kind of polarization that the warrior is born within ourselves. Because we may look inwardly and we may see, ah, there are parts of ourselves, there are aspects of ourselves, there are tendencies within ourselves that are truly destructive, that are truly undermining, that truly seem to inhibit us. And we may also acknowledge that those patterns and tendencies and ways of being inwardly are not ones that are suddenly at some point in our life just kind of going to pack up camp and retire. They seem to be a part of our being. So we may find ourselves in evolving and inventing different strategies for dealing with those areas within ourselves which seem to be restricting or limiting or undermining. Our strategies are often very varied. We often have many different kinds of strategies. Sometimes we just try to ignore them and hope that they'll disappear if we ignore them for long enough. And sometimes you see that, how it gets very magnified on retreats. It, you know, it could give many examples, but perhaps it's around food. Perhaps we practice some forms of self-abuse through food. That's not at all uncommon, let's be frank. Hmm? So perhaps we feel, well, this is certainly limiting. This is certainly undermining. This is certainly destructive. Maybe if I just don't give it any attention, it'll just go away. That's kind of common strategy number one, probably the most common strategy in our lives. Another strategy is refusing to acknowledge that it actually exists. Sometimes it's taken from a more spiritual standpoint when we say, well, you know, everything's empty, of course, anyway, and everything is, of course, insubstantial. So this tendency is equally insubstantial and empty, therefore not worthy even of my acknowledging it. So perhaps, you know, in our lives we've been good in everything we do. You know, we're a good student, we're a good uh, daughter, we're a good worker. We like to be good. Maybe it's one of those things we have. We like to be good. And we come on a retreat, and lo and behold, how many good yogis we have, you know? That compulsive goodness, you know? Never just even on time for a sitting five minutes early, you know? (laughs) One can see how there is this transference often of patterns of conditioning in our lives into our retreats in which they become so embarrassingly clear at times. Sometimes another strategy is feeling, well, if I just give this free play, it'll burn itself out. Now, this is, you know, it's a a more attractive strategy, (laughs) shall we play? (laughs) 
It may be with discipline. Now that's an interesting example. Well, I know I'm an undisciplined person. Every area of my life, I can never finish anything. I can never complete anything. And look, I'm really seeing it clearly on, on this retreat. But if I don't react to it, if I don't respond to it, if I just let it go, it's going to burn itself out. Well, we can probably most likely predict how quickly it is actually going to burn itself out. Huh? It probably won't. It most likely won't. Sometimes the disciplines in relationship to what's happening in our sittings, you know, I mentioned the other day, I met someone on retreat recently, you know, and said, well, you know, I see I think all the time. If I just let myself think, I'm going to come to a point where I've got nothing else to think about. <laughs> Didn't work. Huh? Ten days later, still sitting there, thinking, 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 marveling at the capacity of the mind to produce endless thoughts. Sometimes we make compromises, which is an also an interesting strategy. You know, we may feel that we have perhaps some tendencies towards self-negation, or perhaps we have, you know, tendencies towards greed or towards being invisible. This is a good one, seeing as we're using groups here. You may feel we have a tendency towards being invisible. You know, you come into a group, never a word flows forth. We're a very good listener. Very good observer, but come to speaking? No. So we make compromises and deals with ourselves. You know, well, tomorrow is another group. If I don't talk today, I'll talk tomorrow. Hmm? Or if, if I let myself eat as much as I want today, you know, tomorrow I'll make sure I eat less. Huh? And they're making these kind of compromises and deals. Meanwhile, again, of course, the tendency or the pattern continues to repeat itself and seems at times to be almost impenetrable. At times we feel to be in a position we keep running up against these familiar tendencies and we feel, how on earth am I going to change them? How is it possible to bring about change apart from a lobotomy or something? <laughs> in How is it possible to bring about any form of transformation when I seem to have spent my whole life accumulating these tendencies, enacting them, reinforcing them, believing in them, describing myself by them? How on earth am I going to bring about really any transformation within them? And we perhaps do at some point recognize that our resolutions and our strategies and our compromises and our deal-making simply does not work. It simply doesn't work. None of those formulas and the solutions that our mind produces brings about any form of trans transformation. And we find ourselves still being influenced by those same tendencies. So then it does seem that there is only one option available to us. And the option, the only option that then seems left after we've explored these numerous other strategies is to assume the role of the warrior. It doesn't seem like there's anything left to do, any, anywhere else to turn except to assume the role of the warrior. And we acknowledge, too, that the warrior within ourself, as it emerges, can only exist and only has an existence in relationship to adversaries. A warrior 
for it to have any validity, needs adversaries. And sometimes we define those adversaries as being enemies. And at times, it's not at all difficult to identify within ourselves and with our, within our lives the adversaries that exist, the adversaries that appear to have a reality. An adversary, what we see in the light of being an adversary at times as being an enemy, is any person, any force, any quality, any inner pattern that threatens or seems to hold the potential to threaten to bring us harm, to undermine us in some way, to be destructive in some way to our own well-being and to our own fulfillment. Sometimes an adversary is identified simply as being anything within ourselves, within our lives, that is an obstacle, that is a handicap to fulfilling our own potential. It's seen an adversary becomes anything inwardly or outwardly that prevents us, seems to have the power to prevent us from being who we want to be, from experiencing what we want to experience in our lives within ourselves. Once the warrior is born, the warrior only has one mission, and the only mission that the warrior has is to subjugate and to control and to overcome the adversaries that seem to exist. As soon as the adversaries are gone, then we anticipate or we hope that the warrior will also disappear because we will have no need of it anymore. We will ha- that role will have no re- relevance for us anymore. The warrior, in pursuit of its mission, which becomes the aspirant or the seeker, the warrior, where is that guise? The warrior learns to call upon particular inner resources as weapons in its quests, as weapons to subdue those things we see as adversaries. The warrior is called upon to be strong and to be fearless. The warrior is called upon to be determined and to be undistracted. Without those qualities, then it seems that the struggle cannot be won. And when we see that struggle within ourselves, when we've lived with it at times for, mo- for a long time in our lives, the one thing that we truly want to do is to win this struggle. We want to get out of this struggle. We want to get out of this polarization. And we've assumed the role of the warrior because we conclude that the only way out of the struggle is to subdue and to subjugate the adversaries within ourselves. Because if we don't, It does seem that if we don't, then all those tendencies and those patterns that seem to cause us such grief in our lives are not only going to continue to do so, but perhaps they will become our total reality. And that possibility is a nightmare to us. The concept of the warrior plays a central role in almost every spiritual story. Because in spirituality, we see the same polarization as we've perhaps experienced in other areas of our lives. 
We have goals when we come to this practice. We have aspirations. We have things that we're reaching for. After we don't spend all these hours doing what we're doing here in order to stay the same, in order to walk out of here on the seventh day of this retreat exactly the same as we walked in, of course, we have some things we are reaching for and we have changes that we want to make. Seeking for fulfillment, seeking for clarity, seeking for serenity, aspiring to understand what it means to be focused and to be directed inwardly, seeking for balance and for wisdom and for compassion, seeking to be free. And it's a search and it's a quest which is clearly not always an easy one. This is not the path of comfort. This is not always the path of ease. And it's also clear to us that our desires, our simple desires to bring about change are not enough because we see that as we try to bring about transformation inwardly, as we at times struggle to bring about transformation inwardly, that aspiration and that search is taking place in the midst of our own being. It's not going to take place anywhere else. It's taking place in the midst of our own actuality. It means that our struggle and our reaching towards these qualities we cherish is taking place in the midst of our resistances. It's taking place in the midst of our fears and our memories of past experience. It's taking place in the midst of our prejudices, our likes and our dislikes about ourselves, about others. And our search is taking place in the midst of our conditioning, the whole accumulation of impressions we've gathered in our lives that leads us to see ourselves in a particular way, that leads us to see the world in a particular way, ways that are not always clear. Sometimes we begin this quest and we turn inwardly and we can see that it feels at times so frustrating because the qualities of the forces within us that feel so conditioned can feel so deeply ingrained. And in fact, often as we begin our search, what we begin to do is to outline all of the things that we seem to be caught in. You may have noticed that there is a tendency in meditation practice amongst amongst yogis to rather highlight the negative within ourselves. In fact, if we gave kind of free reign to the critic inwardly, we could probably circle the building with a list of our weaknesses and our imperfections and our obstacles and our failings. But on a real level, a realistic level, we do see that we do seem, it does seem very real that we're handicapped by our conditioning, that we're handicapped and undermined by unclear ways of seeing. And so we're called upon to work with the actuality of ourselves. We are called upon in this practice to work with the actuality of our own experience, to understand what is taking place, to minimize the power of conditioning, to minimize the power of tendencies, 
to see clearly because we see that the constant enactment of conditioned ways of being is not conducive to freedom. Because we see that impulsiveness or blindness of reaction is not conducive to balance. Because we see that insecurity and anxiety and fear within ourselves is not conducive to trust, it's not conducive to dignity and integrity. We can see that the tendency to be distracted, to avoid, to be disconnected from actuality is not conducive to being clear. It's not conducive to being focused or directed. And we perhaps may also recognize that some of the qualities that are ascribed to the spiritual warrior actually do have a certain validity in our own path. We can see that in the development of our own practice, we do need to develop certain qualities, qualities of determination, qualities of undistractedness. We need to, in our practice, to develop qualities of courage. We need to be willing to explore the unknown, to take risks, to be without guarantees, to enter into territory that may not always feel familiar and safe to us. We need to be able to call upon our inner resources, our own inner resources, so we are not overwhelmed by conditioning. And yet, I also feel that the role of the spiritual warrior is a role which has become severely overemphasized. And in spirituality, it's a role which has also become incredibly distorted. I also feel that the adversaries that have been identified as being adversaries are often wrongly identified for women. That at times, when we overemphasize the role of the spiritual warrior, then our own path of spirituality, it ends up becoming a battleground. And we end up being at war. Instead of ending struggle, we seem to end up being involved in even more struggle. But yet the war that we often engage in is a war against ourselves. It's a war which is propelled by fear because we're afraid of being overwhelmed. We're afraid that if we don't exert all this control and this struggle, that somehow we're going to be overwhelmed by all that we have learned to call adversaries within ourselves. The way in which the spiritual warrior too often appears in spirituality is in learning how to control and learning how to subjugate parts of our own being. And at times that capacity to control and to subjugate parts of our own being is something that is praised. It is praised as being the capacity to overcome weakness. And we are blamed or we blame ourselves for the intrusion of anything that we call weakness. 
You may have noticed this dynamic beginning to grow within you already in this retreat. The spiritual warrior may have already emerged, not in a very clear way, in a less visible way, but in a way which may already be influencing your practice. When you feel judgmental towards yourself, when you leave a sitting and you feel to have failed, to have a bad sitting, to be doing poorly, when you feel critical of your practice as not really being as good as you would expect it to be. What has happened there? What has happened in that sitting? So often what has taken place is that you have found yourself encountering within yourself qualities or experiences that don't conform to your idea of what should be happening. What has happened in that sitting, when you leave a sitting feeling filled with elation, that it was wonderful, I mean, maybe this hasn't even happened to you yet, but it may do so. <laughs> feeling filled with elation, what a good meditation, what a good sitting, feeling full of self-congratulation. What has happened in that sitting? Usually what has happened is your experience has conformed to what you feel should be experienced which you consider should be happening, which also means the absence of the intrusion of anything you consider to be unspiritual or unwelcome in your meditation. We tend, when the spiritual warrior plays a strong role, we tend to hold for over ourselves very false measures of success and failure. Our success tends to be determined by our capacity to control and subjugate anything we consider to be unwelcome. Our failure is usually defined or by ourselves and for ourselves as our inability to control. And then when we hold those false measures of success and failure, we can become very intent on overcoming, on cutting through, on transcending as being the only valid paths to awakening. In doing that, we too often learn to use our spirituality as a tool for suppression. We learn the art of denial. And instead of seeing the end of polarization, we see the reinforcement of polarization and duality within ourselves, the good and the bad, the perfect and the imperfect, the strong and the weak. And lost in those polarizations, quite honestly, we create a great deal of grief for ourselves. We may, through our capacity to control and to subjugate, create a quality of quietness, but we don't create a quality of peace. We may be able to cultivate a quality of control that is very strong and invincible, but we don't necessarily cultivate a spirit of freedom. We may even manage to cultivate a whole Baldian portfolio of meditation experiences that we praise ourselves for, but we can't accumulate understanding, and we can't accumulate freedom. 
in practicing that control, we at times very frequently forget the power of gentleness. We frequently forget the power of openness, of loving kindness. We frequently forget the power of compassion and receptivity. We forget them and become disconnected from them because we are so busy brandishing our inner weapons of control and so busy displaying our successes. There is a tendency to wrongly identify the adversaries that need to be let go of. In spirituality, a lot of energy, a lot of time has gone into defining what is unwholesome, what is an obstacle, what is a hindrance, what is unworthy, unvirtuous, what it is that we need to let go of and to go beyond what it is that we need to cut through. And usually the things that are identified as being adversaries or hindrances are all those areas or ways of being inwardly which become sources of attachment, sources of clinging, and sources of pain. Pride is usually identified as being an adversary, as is the desire for power. The expression of ego, the desire for self-betterment, is generally identified as being a hindrance in the quest for spiritual freedom. Ambitiousness, attachment, are equally identified as being obstacles. At times, within the whole definition of what is an obstacle, is included relationship both to our bodies and to our emotions. And everything that is defined as being an adversary is often seen in the light of simply something to be overcome. Something that's worth considering, perhaps, is that much of philosophy, much of the story of spirituality, has been written by male philosophers. And it may be worth considering that the story of spirituality may indeed identify problems and adversaries that are particularly problems for men. <laughs> I haven't, I'm not going so far as to say that women do not have hindrances to overcome. That comes next. <laughs> but it may be worth considering that some of the philosophy of spirituality does in ne indeed need to be rewritten to some extent. The adversaries that many women find themselves encountering in their spiritual path, I feel, do differ, and their approach to working with them also needs to differ, simply because our conditioning is different. The things that we accumulate are, are different. The ways in which we approach ourselves are often very, very different. It's no help to us to adopt the adversaries of others. We have enough of our own. <laughs> it is no help at all to us to uh, 
uh, reinforce our own patterns of rejection or self-denial through adopting other people's adversaries or difficulties. What we may need to let go of, what we may need to develop may differ enormously. For many women, pride is actually not an enormous problem. <laughs> Our problems tend to lie much more in the areas of self-doubt and self-negation. For many women, ambitiousness and the de desire to have power over is not actually a major obstacle worthy of a lot of attention. For many women, actually, what they need to be dealing with much more clearly and much more directly are their own feelings of powerlessness, the lack of self-esteem, a lack of dignity and integrity within themselves. For many women, the assertion of self, the desire to constantly assert oneself in the world in order to seek rewards and praise and goals, again, it is not necessarily an enormous problem. Our difficulty may lie much more in the area of self-criticism. In spirituality, it's often stressed that the body is a source of attachment and should be viewed in its loathsomeness. <laughs> Women tend to be really excellent already at this. <laughs> really good at it. We have a long history and a very well-learned history of learning to view our bodies as being particularly loathsome and contemptible. It's not necessarily something that we need a lot of practice at. Humility is emphasized as a path of spiritual development, and it's very true, humility is a path of spiritual development. But for women, for many women, they've had a long training in how to be humble in very mistaken and very misdirected ways. For many women, too many women have learned how to subdue themselves. And the unfortunate thing that in coming to spirituality, women are often praised for their humility. And it's actually, people teach, some teachers have even gone so far as to say, well, women have a much easier time in the path of spirituality because they're already humble. <sighs> well, <laughs> what actually is being expressed is often not so much humility, but our own history of learning how to be afraid, learning how to be overpowered, and learning how to be cowed before the force of others. It's a kind of, what is it being exhibited at times as a kind of passivity at times that is sometimes mistaken for humility. And what is being expressed are some of the painful lessons we have, may have learned in our lives that teach us actually that it's wiser to be invisible. But this is not humility. In meditation practice, we must be very skillful because we are encouraged in our practice to look inwardly, to investigate, to explore, and to question. And part of that inner exploration and that questioning is so that we can learn to identify those things that are undermining to us, that are destructive to us. But again, so that we can free ourselves of greed, of anger, and delusion. 
But again, at times we as women, I feel, have already been had a long training in that kind of in, in a kind of inner investigation. But again, so often we have used it in a distorted way, learning instead of investigating how to blame inwardly, how to chastise inwardly, how to censure ourselves and censor ourselves. And we have learned at times also to call this exploration or when we come to meditation we feel oh yes I know myself so well because look at I can present this whole array of descriptions about what I am and yet our exploration is sometimes no more than blame than chastisement than defining and concluding things about ourselves renunciation is part of the path. Renunciation is a very important part of the path. Learning how to be simple, learning how to be content with little, learning how not to be bound by attachment and by clinging. But again, it is a path. The path of renunciation is one that needs to be traveled so very, very wisely. Renunciation is encouraged to counter greed, to counter the tendency to accumulate, to counter possessiveness. And yet for too many women, they have a history of learning how to sacrifice, not just things in their lives, but how to sacrifice themselves. And it's probably, there's probably some truth in saying that self-sacrifice has been one of the most retarding elements in women's quest for self-exploration and quest for fulfillment. Again, ego, the sense of I, is clearly something that needs to be understood in our practice because so often our sense of I is very distorted. And yet often the whole process of investigating this self-sense of I is undertaken with the intention to really dismantle an inflated self-image. You know, I, I have this, I am this, to really dismantle these kind of grandiose ideas about what we are. Again, for women, it's something you need to approach very carefully. For too many women, they've done enough dismantling. Or they've dismantled in ways which are not helpful to them. And actually what they are working with is a sense of self, which is it tends at times to be extraordinarily malnourished, underdeveloped without a real sense of balance and integrity. In this practice, to adopt the adversaries of others is to do ourselves a disservice. This practice is a practice where we cultivate serenity and it's also a path of exploration. It's also a path of inquiry. And part of that inquiry is to see what undermines us, to see what is destructive to us, to see what it is within ourselves that is not conducive to our well-being. There may be a place at times in our practice for that sense of being a spiritual warrior, but that is a role which needs clearly re-examining for us. We must not use our practice in a way as a tool of suppression, as a tool of denial, as a tool of disconnection. Some of the qualities of fearlessness, of strength, of determination, of focus, 
are very important qualities in our practice. But they're not qualities that we use in order to subjugate ourselves, in order to control or to suppress ourselves in any ways. In any way, we don't use those qualities in order to disconnect inwardly. Rather, those qualities which are so important in our practice are qualities we, qualities we use to help us to be more present with our inner experience. When we can be present, clearly present with our inner experience, we can discover there's a qualitatively different way of approaching this path, a way which doesn't bear any marks of control. There's a way of traveling this path which doesn't have any concern with winning or losing any battles. There's a way of traveling this path which is in a way of peace, which has nothing to do with engaging in any kind of inner wars. We need to learn how to travel this path, how to travel and undertake this journey of understanding in a peaceful way, We need to know what it is clearly that we as individuals need to develop. What it is that we as individuals need to let go of, no one can define that for us. Only you, only I, inwardly, can discover what it is that we need to nurture, what it is that we need to let go of. And that is our challenge in spirituality. There's no standard map. There's no standard formula or map for unfoldment. We are unique within ourselves, and our path needs to be one of inquiry, because that questioning and understanding is not something that can be given to us by anyone else. It's not something that can be presented to us by anyone else. Our path is to discover an authentic inner vision an authentic vision of who we are, an authentic vision of our own potential, to discover within ourselves that quality of freedom, to learn how to honor and live in accord with our own spirit and our own dignity and our own integrity. We learn how to travel this path in a peaceful way, in the spirit of freedom, so that it can lead to a fulfillment of freedom. May all beings live with awareness. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with integrity.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.